by the time we get done today, we will have covered 60 out of the 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. That means that we are rapidly coming to a close on this series. I would hope that it's been as exciting for you as it has been for me. I did not know how I was going to engage with Isaiah. I didn't know how it was going to roll out. And I've been shocked at the amount of grace and love and kindness that God demonstrates in the Old Testament. Uh, it was amazing to me that this book now opened up to where I can use it as a devotional piece, whereas before it was a little bit scary to walk into, going, I don't know if I'm going to understand it, I don't know how it's going to work. And honestly, it's really been kind of a blessing to me in a big way. So we are in part 25 through our Wake Up series through the book of Isaiah, and I entitled Today's message, Awaken to Future Glory. I always want to welcome everybody that's, that's on streaming, right? And, and kind of part of our, our body is bigger than what we got going on right here. We got everybody coming in and looking in live and having a good time with us and then also those on the radio. So just know there's a massive amount of people that God is engaging with right now. And so you get to be a part of that. That's kind of exciting. Uh, so let's transition into the message and talking a lot about some things that will lead you to encouragement that will become the fill in the blank in front of you. And here's how it goes. Last week, I talked about the fact that this life is designed for one thing and that the next life, the life that we live in heaven is designed for something else. We need to be very clear on what life is for what. Otherwise, we get really bummed out because it doesn't match our expectations. I explained that this life, God gets glory through challenge and difficulty. That suffering even brings glory to God because while we are hurting or while the enemy is pressing on us or while the world is crushing us, as we cry out, yes, Lord, as we cry out, I'm still yours, I still love you, that glory rises up in this place, in this time. We are still learning many things about God. This is a time to reveal part of his nature. You can never know that he is a comforter unless you are agitated. You can never know him as a rescuer unless you are in danger. You can never know him as the lover of your soul until you know one that is a hater of your soul. And so God has used all the difficulties of this life to reveal things about himself. But that's not how the next life goes. The next life is designed to give him glory through other avenues and through other sides of him. For example, it would be about his abundance and his grace and his blessing and his peace. And so the next life is designed very differently. Although it will have some familiarity, much will be different. I don't know how many of you think about heaven. I don't think about it nearly as often as I should. Uh, there's been a lot of reasons for that, but I would assume that my joy level would be higher if I would dwell on the greatness that God has for me coming up. When we do think of heaven, what do you think of? I mean, it, 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 I would guess it's something like this. God, I have these current difficulties and I can't wait for them to be gone. Uh, Lord, I can't see 
So, Lord, when I'm in heaven, I would like to be able to see. God, I cannot hear. I would love to be able to hear. God, I cannot walk. I would love to be able to walk. We think in terms of what is hassling us right now, and we think of heaven in terms of that going away, that we are not harassed, that there is not problems pressing on us all the time. And if that is the case, you'd be right. Partly. There's a lot more to heaven than that. And here's why. Remember, God decided to work through the Hebrew people to communicate to us. And one of his favorite phrases that he utilizes is shalom. He speaks of the issue of rest and the issue of shalom. As a matter of fact, the Jewish people still use shalom quite a bit as a greeting. It, it, we translate it as peace, but like a lot of Eastern terms, it's a word picture. It's a lot more than just peace. When we think of heaven, we think peace, but that's not shalom. So every time I talk about this term, I have to go back and look it up because I want to see the richness. And every time I see something different. This time, what I found in my studies is that it comes from the root word of making full payment from loss. For example, it is to make up all that which you have been stolen from. Now, you would look and you go, well, Lance, that was kind of my point. Like, I've had stolen from me by all this harassment around me, and so I can't wait for heaven when I'm not harassed. Let me suggest this to you. You have no idea what's been stolen from you. We live in a world that we walk around and we see majestic mountains and we see beauty. We see thundering waterfalls and we see massive hurricanes. We see the power of God. We see the beauty of God. And we look and we say, what a beautiful painting. But do you understand? It's a painting with mud all over it. We live under a cursed world. We have the thorns and the thistles and the problems, all this stuff that we're still looking at. How amazing was the painting before the mud was smeared all over it? If we're still amazed at what it looks like after it's marring, what did the original look like? We don't even know what human relationship is because we think of it, it would sure be nice not to be lonely anymore. But God drops it a whole nother level of something you don't even know that was robbed from you. How about having relationships where you are fully known, where you don't have to try to defend yourself or do your own PR work, where you don't have to try to work through someone else's security how about having deep engaging real relationship with all the people around you you didn't know that was ripped off so when god talks about heaven he's talking about a whole level of things that were robbed from you that he will restore and bring back and that's why heaven is more than we could ever imagine because we don't even know how far we've fallen it is not just absence of war it is presence of peace it is not just not a lot of bad stuff it's the presence of all that is good do you understand that we will be in the very presence of god himself the the one thing that i have learned through different reading and stories and and uh people that are very close to me in my life is that anyone that has ever had contact with god the number one thing they say is I can't describe how it feels. There's an overwhelming 
power and love mixed in at the same time. You know you are in the presence of someone extraordinary, but somehow you feel safe and everything is right. That is going to be our normative. That is going to be for the children of God. And I'm going to assume that you are a child of God, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ. Why? Because I don't know how you can sit and hear of his love and be anything other than that. When he is lavished on you and cared for you and constantly chasing after you and finding ways to woo you to himself, I don't know how you can say no to that. But if you are a child of God, know this to fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. One day things will be all right. One day things will be all right. Now I have a personal pet peeve about different teachers that just try to say things that make people like them and buy their books. I don't like that. That irritates me. I, probably because I have the gift of insulting people. Um, I have the, uh, the whole, uh, let me say something offensive. That's kind of my spiritual gift. However... When I say a phrase, one day things will be all right, I mean it legitimately and accurately. In other words, when Jesus Christ is king and he reverses the curse and he brings about his presence, then all things are right. God said, behold, I make all things new and so he will make all things right. So in your heart, know that today how you feel is not how you will always feel. Today that you, what you are facing is not what you will always face. That one day as a child of God, things will be all right. Turn with me to Isaiah 59.1. Isaiah 59.1. If you are using the Bibles under the seat, it's, it's around page 614, 615, something like that. Uh, 618. There we go. Whoops, I had my page wrong. 618. Here's how it begins. Behold. Remember, every time you hear that word, it means pay attention. Listen very closely to what I'm about to say next. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Let's just start with that. The Bible is full of battles. The Bible is full of uh, scenarios where his people go up against other people or that the good guys go up against the bad guys. And as a matter of fact, the more you look at the battles, you find that most of those recorded in detail were the ones that were insurmountable odds. Whether it's Israel, a million Hebrew people coming out of slavery from Egypt, right? All they know is being slaves. For over four generations, over 400 years, they've been in slavery. They know nothing about warfare. They haven't been trained. They were not allowed to have weaponry while they were slaves to Egypt. They come walking out and they are all lost and wide eyed because where are we going to go? And how's this thing going to work? And I can't believe what God just did. This is all crazy. And they go walking out and they're stuck in front of the Red Sea. And here comes the chariots of Pharaoh's army, trained killers. They come rolling up. Behind them and you can imagine the panic in their heart. That's called an insurmountable odd You're not going to win that battle Of course, we all know how that went, right? Open up the water Let your kids through smash them down on the bad guys, right? 
That's kind of how it went. And yet they won. Now the Bible has a million of those stories. Gideon, let's move your whole army down to 300 and then you're going to go ahead and fight against tens of thousands. Oh look, I'm going to fight for you. Whether it's David and Goliath, little guy against big guy. Over and over and over, the Bible talks about insurmountable odds. But you know that God plus nothing is majority, yeah? One of the stories that caught my attention as I was doing my studies was a story with Jonathan. Now, Jonathan gets no play. Jonathan gets no press. Everybody focuses on Saul and David, right? Saul and David, Saul and David. As a matter of fact, Jonathan was so humble and so awesome that he was willing to let his best buddy be blessed and take the throne that was rightfully his. Do you get that? He's the prince. He's the guy that should have been on the throne. But he was so into God's plan and God's glory that he would even promote his friend that he would take the throne from him. Jonathan was a man of faith. The more you know about this guy, the more you realize why he and David were such good friends. Because they were both warriors. Now, when Saul was selected by God, one of the reasons everybody liked him was because he was good-looking, tall, strong warrior. Saul was a physical specimen and everybody was just like, man, that guy looks awesome. He looks like a king, right? Well, when you become king and you get to opt and select and you have political marriages, they're going to select out the best on the other side. And so you're probably going to have some pretty awesome looking kids, right? That was Jonathan. Jonathan, like his father was a warrior Big and strong, just like Absalom, David's son, was attractive and good-looking and strong. So here you have Jonathan, who has everything going for him, but he's completely into God. This is the story. So they were fighting the Philistines, right? The Philistines were bigger than the Israelites at this time. The Philistines were in charge, and Israel would kind of pepper at them, kind of this little guerrilla warfare. Ah, they'd attack, and they'd run back. And Well, the Philistines kind of got irritated. They rolled out their whole army, and it says there was tens of thousands of chariots, and the troops were, quote, like the sand of the seashore. That's called insurmountable odds. They roll up and they break out into contingents all across the plains, all across the areas. Those are called garrisons, uh, groups of soldiers. So sure enough, Saul and Jonathan separate out and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. So Saul's way down there. Jonathan's over here with his camp. Well, sure enough, Jonathan has his buddy, which is called his armor bearer. Right? So his armor bearer is the guy that rolls in with him during warfare. Your reload guy. Right? Because you gotta remember, this is not the, you know, you know, throw it in, that kind of, it's not that. We're doing old school warfare. I threw my spear, I don't have a spear anymore. I mean, it's, it's kind of how it starts. You get one shot, you know? And even if you kill that guy, there's another dude coming after you. And so you go, reload guy, grab his spear and you throw it and go, reload guy, right? So reload guy hangs out with him. And he's gotta be tough because who you don't want to die on your watch is the prince. Right? Makes sense? So, you gotta be pretty tough. So they're all sitting around, it's in, it's in the nighttime. Jonathan leans over to his armor bearer, who already knows how Jonathan is. So Jonathan goes, dude. I don't know if he said dude, but I say dude. Dude, I'm bored out of my mind. We're waiting for this battle thing. I have an idea. 
And you know when Jonathan comes up with an idea, the armor bearer's like, oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah, what's that? Here's the thing, check it out. I say, you and me, just you and me, right? We go, we sneak over, let's see if we can go take on those guys. Uh, Jonathan, we have an army for a reason, right? Uh, shouldn't we all go do that? No, 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 man, because here's the deal. If God is on our side, who cares about odds? Let's just go do it. Okay, here's how we're going to do it. I'm, okay, so here's the plan, right? So when we go up to them, if they like mess with us and they're like, come on up here, you losers, blah, 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 then we know that God is on our side and we can take them. If they like shun us away and hey, we'll fight you tomorrow or whatever, then we'll know that it's a no-go. How about that? Now the armor bearer is like, oh man, Jonathan's serious? All right, whatever, man, I'm all in with you. Let's go. What are we going to, all right, let's do it. So like, he's all, shh. So they sneak out of the camp, right? So they go out and they're climbing up the rocks. Because up there, they're up on the top. Because all the, the Philistines wanted to have the vantage point. So they're up there. Jonathan's climbing up and he's like, shh, right? Well, sure enough, the Philistines see him. And they're like, hey, guys, come here for a second. Oh, look, two guys are coming to attack us. Hey, losers, we'll wait for you. Why don't you come on up here and we'll have a duel. Jonathan looks over at his buddy. He's like, yeah, high five, right? And he's like, that was it. That was a sign. And the armor bearer's like, all right, here we go. They come over the top and all of a sudden it transitions into Matrix 300, right? Where now they're just like, yeah, they come flying over and it's like, you know, they're letting all this stuff happen and they're cutting and hacking and they're flying through. It says by the time they even got rolling, 20 men lay dead. Now, why can two guys take out 20 soldiers who are all waiting for them? Because Jonathan said, who cares about odds? Who cares about that? Is God on our side or not? If he is, I don't care. Let's roll with it. Sure enough, everybody's in confusion. God jumps and dog piles on top, makes them go crazy. They're attacking each other. Meanwhile, Saul is in the other camp and he sees all this chaos and he's like, what is going on? Wait, where's Jonathan? Right? And he's like, all right, you guys, let's go attack them. Ah! And they all run and Israel won the day. And it all came from the heart of a man who didn't care about odds. Was God with us or is he not? If he's with us, the rest is details. The problem is not God's ability. The problem's with us. Look at the next line. We're only in verse two, by the way. Where you're never getting out. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What's the problem? Our sin. In the old covenant, it was very clear. Do what I tell you to do, I'll bless you. Don't do what I tell you, I'll curse you. Make it very, very simple. Isaiah was looking around and going, we have clearly been cursed. There's something wrong. And the problem is not with God. The problem is not that... Oh, we lost battles and things went badly for us because God's not good enough. Something was wrong in the sin realm. The part that makes it difficult in this new covenant, because we are not in the Old Testament anymore. We are post-Pentecost. We are in the age of grace. It makes everything more relational, but more messy. It is very difficult to know when God is allowing difficult stuff to happen to us for his glory 
or when he's allowing difficult stuff to wipe us out because he's trying to get our attention. So we have to go back and seek his face to find out, Lord, what is going on. But if you get wiped out in this life, your first question should be, God, what are you trying to say? He may well say, like Job, I'm not trying to say anything to you. You're great. I'm trying to say everything to the world. I'm trying to say everything to the enemy. I'm trying to demonstrate something to my angels. It's got nothing to do with you. Or he may say, you're out of line. I'm not going to let it go on like this. I will shut you down. But always ask. You go, does that still actually happen? Does, does sin really have an effect? In Peter, in the New Testament, he said, make sure to treat your wives appropriately so that your prayers are not hindered. You know what that means? It is not because sin, when it gets on us like little goblins, carries us away from God. And God's like, where'd they go? It's not because we get this disease and God's like, I can't look at sin. It's horrible. I can't even handle my people. That is not the problem. The problem is, is that we have a good father who treats his kids well and will not encourage bad behavior. So although he could rescue, he refuses. Although he does hear, he refuses to listen. And therefore, he says, if you're going to treat your wife like garbage and play a game and come and hang out with me like we're cool we're not cool i'll shut you down i will not listen to your prayers you do not treat my daughters like that you treat your wife like garbage i will get in your face that is a promise in scripture you want to know what some of our problems are in our prayer lives it's how you're treating other people and god will block you says this verse three let's go through what's going on with israel on why there's a problem for your hands are defiled they're made ritually unclean with blood and your fingers with iniquity talking about the bad stuff they've done your lips have spoken lies your tongue mutters wickedness because out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks no one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. Verse 7. Their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. And I paraphrase, we are lost like the blind. We cry out in sorrow. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. I paraphrase, our sins are obvious. We deny God. We're liars. There's no justice. The Lord saw it, verse 15, and it displeased him that there was no justice pause justice is a big deal to god it is not something that you and i spend too much time thinking about it's something that god spends a lot of time thinking about hey what's wrong with our judicial system why are some people treated unfairly blah 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 oh i don't know doesn't matter let's roll on that will cause a blockage because God's not okay with that. Think about who Jesus hung out with. He hung out with the oppressed, those that had challenges, those who had no voice in the court system. He was the one that said, I have the authority 
I have the dominance in my culture to help out those that do not. That is our responsibility. Is even though it doesn't affect you personally, you should take it on as if it's personally and make sure that you start writing the system. Justice is a big deal to God. Injustice insults God's heart. Let me use an analogy. Last week we rolled out a video to you called The Pink Room. Anybody remember the, uh, the uh, trailer that we played? And he said... He was asked the question, what's the youngest girl that is sold here for sex slavery? And he said, three years old. Did anybody get offended? God was offended. You were supposed to be offended. That was supposed to sting your sense and say, that's injustice, and I'm not cool with that. So now we have missions like AIM, Agape International Missions, and they go out, uh, ministry, they go out, and they're trying to help Make that a right situation. They're in Cambodia trying to make sure that they're working with both sides of the aisle on this, both the perpetrators and those that are hurt. They're rescuing in. They're giving a voice to those that do not have one. IJM, International Justice Mission. They spend their lives as attorneys doing the boring paperwork year after year after year, sitting in an office somewhere so they do everything right so they can bust the bad guys legally, get them thrown into prison, and make the slaves set free. Our justice system in America is broken. Guess what? That's our problem. We need to realize that even though not everything affects us, maybe we can get an honest hearing. Not everybody can. And it is our job who can to help out those who cannot. We shield the oppressed. We help the poor. We stand in the gap. He saw that there was no man, verse 16. God saw there was no man and wondered why there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Do you ever wonder where Paul got that idea in Ephesians 6? Ripped it off from Isaiah, right? He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak with ferocious passion. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries. Verse 19. Why? So that they shall fear the name of the Lord, for he will come. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus came into America and just slaughtered the judicial system, and righted it and made it righteous and good, we would all clap and applaud. Yay, Jesus, you did an awesome job. Here's the problem with that scenario. We're the first line of attack, and if Jesus has to go in and do it himself, that means we failed. Things in our society are broken. Guess whose job it is to fix it? The church. We always push it off and think as long as we think Jesus' thoughts, as long as we hang out and we read our Bibles, everybody's good. They're not good. If you see an injustice, if you keep your eyes open to injustice and God highlights it to you, that is likely a call to action. 
fix it. Make it right. Well, it doesn't involve me and I really don't have anything. As long as our officials are elected, we have a certain form of influence because they want our vote. We have an ability to make a difference. Verse 20, when God gets involved, he said, Israel, pay attention. A redeemer will come to Jerusalem, Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. God is near the brokenhearted and the humble, those that repent and turn towards him. He runs in as their deliverer, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my promise with them. This is my covenant, says the Lord. My covenant and promise is my spirit that is upon you. My words I put in your mouth shall not depart from this time forth and forevermore. Do you know how many gifts are waiting for you when you press in deeper with the Lord? So many of us are content with our spiritual lives and it absolutely nauseates me. If your best experience with God was in college and you're 60, we have a problem. It better have been last week. We are about to engage into a 40-day fast for our healing and worship nights. And I'm going to suggest, why in the world would you take that one off? Why wouldn't you want to press into God? Why wouldn't you want to hear his voice? Why wouldn't you want to drive forward and do something that makes you uncomfortable? Why wouldn't you want the depth of your walk to drop a whole nother level? Why wouldn't you want to walk into the waters or get out of the boat or go hang out with Jesus? Why would you deny opportunities... To go hardcore with God. Why would you do that? Is it because you're so content with where you're at? One of the things that we are being called to drive forward in is prayer. Are you interceding for our congregation? Are you lifting up your brothers and sisters in prayer? Are you the one that is doing warfare? Are you now the warriors in this aspect? Are we growing in God? If not, why not? He has invited us. We need to rush forward. There are so many deeper things, so many greater gifts, so many exciting things that God has for us. Sometimes it's in the area of just peace. The more we press into God, the more peace rises up in our life. You don't know until you try. Jesus said, if you're going to seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. And when you find me, wow. Arise, Israel. Stand up that we can see your glory. For the light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. God is about to look good through you. For behold, pay close attention. Darkness shall cover the earth. Thickness, thick darkness, the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. What's he talking about? When has there ever been a time post this... That all the world looked at Israel and were jealous. When has there ever been a time when everybody wanted to run to Israel to find out more about God? When has there ever been a time when Jerusalem was heralded as the one place where God is most powerful and present? When has there ever been a time that everybody flooded to the Middle East and wanted to just be near Israel? Never. 
Israel's always beat up. Israel is always disparaged. Israel is always shoved aside. Even when they got back their land and they were able to go in there, what happened? Everybody's irritated. They're always irritated at Israel. And Israel are little stubborn guys and they're out there fighting all the time. When has there been a time when they were glorified because of God? That is a time yet to come. And it brings a very unusual doctrine of scripture to the forefront called the millennial kingdom. A lot of us like to think in easy terms and categories. And so we like to think that, hey, you die, you go to heaven. Awesome. Problem is is that you do not realize that there are a series of bus stops along the way. It is not a nonstop flight. It is, as a matter of fact, a series of stops, and let me explain them to you quickly. We are currently in what's called the church age. We are post-Pentecost. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has already come, and when he came, he inaugurated what is called the end times. So whenever somebody says, we're in the end times, they're trying to be dramatic. It actually means Jesus has come the first time, and now we're in the end times. So the end times so far has been over 2,000 years long, so however you want to refer to it. But these are the last days, that kind of idea. It means the church age. The church age will culminate and close as we hurtle into what's called the tribulation. Now, many of you have been through our Revelation series, and you remember all this. Cool. You're way ahead of the rest of the class. The seven-year tribulation is a period of two, three-and-a-half-year times. And what they are is basically time for the Antichrist to rise up and take control. However you want it to roll, and how's that going to work, and what's going to happen here, and how's he going to show up, and what's he going to be from, what country is he from, I don't know. The Antichrist shows up. He's mean to Israel. He tries to take all of God's glory and things get ugly. You're going to go, well, actually, Lance, there's a bus stop before that called the rapture. First of all, don't know how that's going to work, quite frankly, but I need to be very clear with you. It doesn't matter whether it happens in the middle, it's going to happen in the end, it's going to happen at the beginning, and everything else. It is not the second coming of Christ, and let me explain why. Wherever the rapture happens, if the rapture is indeed how it appears in scripture, it is a, hey, we're all playing Parcheesi and we all disappear, right? Y'all know how it is. It's always like, oh no, now I'm left behind with all this food at the picnic. It's that kind of thing, right? It's this, I don't know when it's happening. It's hidden and it's all. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ comes back, which will be at the end of the tribulation, he will come as he left. How do we know that? Because when Jesus Christ ascended, um, when all the disciples were up on the Mount of Olives and they were hanging out and Jesus rose up before them, which of course he always does in the movies like this, and he smiles knowingly, and then he rises up on a cloud. I don't actually know how he did it. He could have done it Superman style and just kind of took off. I don't know. He goes up and they watched him go up until they couldn't see him anymore. Do you remember that? And as a matter of fact, two angels show up and they're looking up going, what are we looking at? And they said, well, Jesus just went up there. They're like, I know. Do you realize he's coming back the same way? He will come rolling in gradually. Now, not gradually doesn't mean slow. Like he's going to come in 
and it will be processional. It's not an instant, I'm here, hey, it's not that. He said he will come in with the armies of God behind him. This is the rider on the white horse, name on the thigh, eyes blazing of fire, crowns on his head. He will come down with the fury of God and he will wreck the enemy. He will come in and make war. That is how the tribulation will close. And what he ultimately does is decimate the enemy and set up a thousand year reign on earth. Whoa. Amen. Now, this thousand-year reign of, of God, of Christ, here on earth, is a trippy concept. We're going, man, why would you do that? Can't we just get to the heaven part? This is, this is all totally unnecessary, right? Jesus Christ comes, sets up shop, is in Jerusalem, is on the throne. Everybody at this point is believers because he's decimated the enemy. But during this thousand-year reign of Christ, people are living and dying. They're living longer. The curse is reversed. We now have more of an Eden state. We now have Jesus present among us in Jerusalem. All the nations rush towards Jerusalem because that's where Jesus is. But everyone that's born during that time has to get saved just like everybody else. And imagine trying to get saved when you know that Jesus is over there. Whole different ballgame, yeah? But that's all they know. And as they go along, Satan has been bound for a thousand years. So you don't have Satan. You have a return like Eden State and you have Jesus in the throne. You would assume this place is awesome. And it is awesome. But after a thousand years, Satan is released for a short time. To see who he can deceive. You can imagine all those that have been born during this time are going, you know what? As long as I've been living, everything's about Israel, 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 and I get it and all that stuff. And Satan stirs their heart. They begin to get resentful and angry and they rise up as an army and they go and they surround Jerusalem. Jesus is on the throne. The enemies are before him. And the father says, stop messing with my children. And the fire rains down from heaven. Wham! They're gone. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Everybody is thrown into the lake of fire. The full judgment is done. And we have new heavens and new earth. And we enter into eternity. Now, why would God have such a long bus stop? Why would we do the millennial kingdom at all? It seems kind of silly. Can't we just get there? Well, you're thinking like a Gentile. You're thinking like a non-Jew. You're thinking like a modern-day American. Jesus has made an awful lot of promises to Israel that have not come true. And you need to understand that. He said, a descendant of David will sit on the throne in Jerusalem. He said, I will make Israel glorious. He said, I will cause all nations to come to you. When has that been fulfilled? If Jesus doesn't fulfill his promises to the Jews, he can't fulfill his promises to the church. Do you understand that because of the Jews, we are adopted in? We are riding on their coattails. We are coming in after them. God is not done with his people. God is not done. He will do a fire. A lot of the tribulation is a fiery purification of Israel. So that he gets them to where they should be. He will restore them to true Israel, purify them out, and go, that's what I'm talking about. That's my people. And I will reign over you. So what we read from here on out, which I'm going to read all the way through, I want you to realize what we're talking about. These are promises to Israel about what it will be like. Lift up your eyes all around Israel and see... They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. 
Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. Verse six, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. Pause. Does that sound like Christmas? Notice that partial fulfillment. What did the Magi bring from the east? Oh, look, gold and frankincense and the shepherds brought good news, right? The angels brought it. It says, verse 9, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls. Their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually in protection. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste the glory of lebanon known for their trees lumber timber will shall come to you the cypress the plain and the pine just like solomon's grand beautiful temple design to beautify the place of my sanctuary the temple and i will make the place of my feet where i dwell glorious god says The sons of those who afflicted you, the generations of the nations that used to not like you, shall come bending low to you. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, and the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever. A joy from age to age, verse 16. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace, your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no more, shall be no more your light by day, nor your brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Let's pause for a moment. Side note, rabbit trail. Have you ever wondered why the sun and moon always go away? It happens in the millennial kingdom and God is a light and then it happens again in heaven. In New Jerusalem, it keeps talking about and the sun and moon are gone. I always thought that was weird. Is it, you know, God's like the flashlight, like the big glowing guy? As he walks between the buildings, the light gets darker and lighter and stuff like that, right? And I always thought, that's so weird. Why would he care if he created them? Why are they going away? What's the big deal about that? And it occurred to me as I was doing the study this time, Do you know in this day and age how many people worship the sun and moon? That was a huge deal. So he said, do we need them? Nope. Flick. And he gets rid of them. And he goes, I'm God. Pick it up, verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous. That's after the sifting process of the tribulation. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Verse 22, the least one in Israel shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. I'm in charge. And when it's time, I'll get it done. Listen. For the children of God, our future is glorious. Our future is bright. For the people of God, there is a power in the Lord 
that wages and runs out into the future and prepares a place. Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'm going to make sure to come back and get you so you're with me. God has told his Jewish people so many different things about his love for them. He has used them as a drama. As a matter of fact, if you ever want to talk about a nation that has really received a lot of punishment in bringing glory to God, it's the Jewish people. So I will tell you this, in the millennial kingdom, God lavishes his grace upon them and his kindness and his love and says, this is what I wanted for you the whole time. This was my ideal. This is what I wanted you to do. When my son came into town the first time, if you only would have received him as king, but you did not. Therefore, you will look upon the one that you pierced. And behold, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If indeed that is true, and we can all talk about whether or not Gentiles are going to be in the millennial kingdom and how that's going to work and will we die twice and blah, 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 blah. The fact remains... God is good and he has a beautiful future. And no matter how you want to look at it and how it all washes out, he's got you safe in his hands. And today is not how it's always going to be. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for walking us through your encouragement of excitement about towards the future. That, God, for many of us, our present is crushing us. For many of us, Lord, we feel like we can't make another day. And yet, our future is so bright that your word says that which is momentary, that which is temporary, that is a trial for us, is far outweighed by the glory that is to come. Lord, maybe some of us need to get into a heavenly mindset and be encouraged to know, Lord, you are mighty and you will see us through and you will bring glory to your name and you will glorify your children. Thank you so much, God, for the kindness and your love and protection. Be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Closing challenge this week. Consider the promises God has made to you, both in the Bible and personally. What would life look like if these came true?